This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Our card this week is Tony Bernazard, number 122, second baseman for the Oakland Athletics. Okay, Tony Bernazard. But before we get to that, we do have some follow-up from last week's episode about Don Sutton. Is that right? Yes. I I knew that I would miss something with Don Sutton. And I think I had a note about this, but maybe we skipped over it. There were a lot of accusations against Don Sutton for scuffing the ball, similar to the <laughs> Joe Necro incident. And he was never officially reprimanded for any kinds of those shenanigans, even though Sparky Anderson would accuse him from time to time of uh, using a nail file or sandpaper, those kind of gamesmanship, let's say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) But I did come across a story from 1978. And so by this point, I think it's so ridiculous to say this. He was in his 12th season in (laughs) 1978, and we were talking about his 1988 baseball card. (laughs) But at this point, Don already had a reputation uh, as a scuffer of the ball. And the umpire, Doug Harvey, saw some marks on the ball. And he warned Tommy Lasorda and told him, make sure your team isn't messing around. So then later in the seventh inning of the same game, Harvey saw another scuffed ball and threw Don Sutton out of the game. Harvey said he wasn't saying that Sutton was defacing the ball, but he was pitching with a defaced baseball. And the rule said that he had to throw him out because anyone pitching with a defaced baseball should be thrown out of the game. And so that was the first time that Sutton was ejected from a game, and it would have meant a 10-game suspension. But after the game, Don threatened to sue the umpires, the umpire (laughs) association, Major League Baseball. I'm an attorney. I'm not sure what the cause of action would be here, but... But Don, Don threatened to sue. Tommy Lasorda went nuts. He played the game under under protest. And ultimately, maybe because of those threats, Don wasn't suspended from for that 10-game period. I thought it was funny in a later interview around the time that Don was in, inducted into the Hall of Fame, Major League Baseball asked him, did you cheat? And Don's response was, no, I never got caught cheating. oh don what an excellent excellent denial you are an attorney and although you have not been retained by don sutton's estate for this purpose you can't give legal advice to them but what court would you say of jurisdiction would apply uh in this kind of uh scenario or if he had been suspended what would be the proper remedy for someone in that position I assume it would have gone through the Labor Relations Board or maybe through the Major League Baseball Players Association grievance process. I was wondering, Uh, what about maritime court? Is there any? (laughs) It was a scuff. It wasn't a water-based. Oh, it was a a scuff, not a skiff. So that would be something different. Well, thank you for helping to clarify that. And on that amazing denial from Don Sutton, I'm going to use that one later. That is uh, it for our follow-up. Now it is time to go to our card, Tony Bernazard. And Tony comes to us uh, from 
A suggestion on Twitter from Shortstops9. Back in December, we were looking for suggestions of Oakland Athletics. We ended up going with Dennis Eckersley. and But at the time, we were asking for suggestions of Oakland A's. And just to show that we do get around to all of these suggestions, I know that there's some more waiting in the queue. Shortstops9 suggested if we're looking for an Oakland A's player with some interesting stories... He said, Tony Bernazard would not disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so we've had, we've had one good denial and one good bit of euphemistic language there. <laughs> yeah, he is, has some interesting stories for sure. And maybe from his post-playing career, more likely. So we got that suggestion. Tony Bernazard, a decent second baseman, had some, some power and speed. In 1988, though, he was not in Major League Baseball. So another one of these cards where <laughs> the picture is deceptive and Tony went on to, let's say, an explosive career as a <laughs> Mets executive. I remember Tony Bernazard's name mostly because he had a Z in it. And I thought that that was interesting. Like there were some guys who they had a Z in their name. And I I don't know why that always jumped out at me, but I assumed and maybe it's because I thought when I'd see Tony Bernazard, I would think of Tony Fernandez. So I think I ascribed a better career to Tony Bernazard than his stats would suggest. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like if you scrambled up the letters from Fernandez, Bernazard's not that far off. And I'll tell you, having a Z in your name, uh, it's always worked for me. Let's go to the front of the card of 122. And this is a very good looking card. David, we've got Tony is, he looks like he's in the batter's box. But, or maybe he's just stepped out of the batter's box. He's looking to the dugout for signs. He's got his bat, you know, resting in the other hand. He's giving a real stare down. The eye black looks excellent. This is a, a striking look. He's a very good mustache as well. Mustache and eye black combination. The We didn't talk about the design of the athletics card when we talked about Dennis Eckersley, I don't think. It has green like a kelly green writing of athletics a lighter green border and then the nameplate is purple and mm. it doesn't it's just, it's one of the stranger color schemes in the 1988 top set i think yeah well i dig it i think it looks pretty cool i think i think tony looks kind of tough in this picture too it's a good tough stance i think looks good oh yeah yeah i mean He's looking. He's either looking for the dugout, looking to the dugout for signs, or he's staring someone down and threatening to beat them. <laughs> it's kind of hard. To, kind of hard he's to also, tell. Maybe he's menacingly holding that bat too, like he. That's what I mean. Slapping the bat into his into the palm of his hand. That might be, you know. Spoiler alert. We'll see how that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, foreshadowing, uh, perhaps. So. Let's go to the back of the card of 122, and Tony is second baseman, 5'9", 160, and a switch-hitting batter, signed as a free agent by the Expos in 1973, originally from Caguas, Puerto Rico. Not featured on the back of Tony's card the five years that he spent in the minor leagues. In AA and AAA, he was pretty good hitting 280 and stealing 30 bases a year in 78 and 79. In 1978, he also hit 30 doubles and nine home runs at AAA. Yeah, and then the fun, 
Yeah, the fun fact is that Tony led Double A with 107 runs scored at Denver in 1978. I was very confused by that fun fact. Matt, you read that fun fact as Tony leading Double A with 107 runs scored in 1978. Uh, this is a, another one of these confusing fun facts with no context. He was not in Double A in 1978. He was in Triple A. The AA there stands for the American Association. So the tops company not using all of the space provided. They probably could have made that a little bit smaller <laughs> writing and clarified what exactly they bet. Did he lead American Airlines or Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> like with that's it. either of those would make more sense than than double A for a tr- not for a triple A team. To use an abbreviation that has a clear other meaning in the sport. Just a bad decision on the part of the Tops Corporation. The AA affiliate was in Quebec City. They were at one point called the Carnivals, Mm. and then they were later changed to the Metros. Uh, I found a Carnivals hat, which has like a little snowman with a like what looks like a Santa hat hugging a sea. I'm not going to buy it. I promise (laughs) I won't buy it. I like that. Okay, don't. Yeah, don't buy that. So whatever association that was, that's good performance, uh, leading that association in 1978. And he ends up getting the call-up in 1979. He plays 22 games for the Expos that season. He had been hitting 300 at AAA in 1979, called up to the majors, continued that streak, hit 300. And his first plate appearance was a bases-loaded walk against Hall of Fame pitcher Gaylord Perry. And with that theme, the three Expos who were on base are also names that we know. Andre Dawson, Tony Perez, and Gary Carter, also all Hall of Famers. Whoa. So just a a weird little note that there were four Hall of Famers involved (laughs) in this, in his first plate appearance. He was not one of them, unfortunately. Tony's career did not have a similar trajectory. He did hit his first home run on July 21st off of Don Sutton. It's all Don Sutton all the time in the month of January here at the 1988 Tops podcast. Tony's early career had a lot of success involving Hall of Famers. Four of his first seven career home runs were off of Hall of Famers. In his career, he hit relatively well against Hall of Fame pitching. So his second home run came in 1980. He only got one in those first 22 games. Second home run was off of Burt Blylevin, who we've already talked about. His sixth home run was his last as an expo was off of Phil Necro. Mm-hmm. They're hitting all of our players. All of our favorites. Well, this, I think, I mean, I don't want to go, uh, go meta too early in the show, David, but this could be attributed to the fact that no one gets into the Hall of Fame anymore. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so, you know, you go back to 19 you go back to 1979 and 1980 and any of those games it seems like it's a Hall of Fame pitcher against a team with three or four Hall of Fame players on it. If you were to go back now and look at games from the year 2000 and how many of those players ended up in the Hall of Fame, it's so many fewer that you're just not going to see that many this kind of coincidence anymore. Uh, I saw a graph that showed the number of appearances by Hall of Famers in a given year, and it was just constantly trending down. 
because those players took up a greater percentage of the appearances back in back in the day. And we we just talked about it with Don Sutton. Of course, the guy pitched nine innings 35 times a season for 23 seasons. So, yeah, Tony Bernazard might hit a home run off of him. Don probably still pitched a nine-inning complete game and got a win in a 4-3 game or something. It's just an, an interesting note, and it's part of, I think, what makes this podcast fun. 40 episodes, and we've talked about four or five Hall of Fame players. Going back to Tony, in 1980, at the end of that season, he was traded to the Chicago White Sox. And he was penciled in as the starting second baseman. And then his seventh home run, first for the White Sox, was off of Dennis Eckersley. So actually, all four of those are guys that we've, that we've <laughs> talked about. That's awesome. So yeah, you have a note here. He faced 14 Hall of Fame pitchers in his career and hit home runs off of seven of them with a 307 average. So yeah, I mean, it points to he did pretty well against those really great pitchers. But what it also points to is that those great pitchers, even though they're giving up a bunch of home runs to Tony Bernazard, they're left in the game and are able to compile enough stats to become Hall of Fame pitchers. They don't just get pulled right away to and then, you know, end their game in the third inning, you know, for a reliever to come in for one more inning after them and then a one one more inning after them. Yeah, and in in furthering that stat line, he hit over four hundred against Dennis Eckersley. Over 400 against Raleigh Fingers, also against Goose Gossage. He had some good success against some really stellar pitchers. I see here, had an amazing streak of luck on his birthday. So, what the... He had, his, had a home run on his 25th birthday in 1981, and then hit one on his 26th birthday in 1982. The only player in White Sox history to ever do that two years in a row? This is an, What a record. Yeah, of course I found this on a White Sox-centric <laughs> review of Tony Bernazard's career. <laughs> yeah, the, it's good luck on your birthday to hit, hit, hitting home runs off of Hall of Famers and on your special day. I, I gotta say that Topps Corporation missed the most fun fact of fun facts. We've, we've identified... I mean, the Hall of Fame one they couldn't have known in 1988 because they wouldn't have known who ended up being the Hall of Fame pitchers. But he hit birthday home runs back-to-back years. That's a great fun fact. So let's go back to his career, though. Let's go back in the chronology. So those birthday home runs come in 1981 and then 1982. 1982 becomes a really good offensive year for him. Uh, he's playing in 137 games. Hits 256, but getting a little bit of power there. 25 doubles, 9 triples, and 11 home runs. So he's, he's on a good trajectory at that point. Goes into 1983, which was you know a big year for the White Sox. He's their starting second baseman. Unfortunately, although it was a big year for the White Sox, he was not around for the playoffs. Through 60 games, mm. the White Sox were 28 and 32. Tony was hitting 262 at that point. It was fine, but he only had two stolen bases, and Tony Larusa was looking for more speed. So they traded Tony for Julio Cruz. At that point of the season, Julio Cruz was leading the major leagues with 33 steals. Looking back on it, it seems like a kind of like-for-like trade. Julio Cruz maybe had more speed consistently, but Cruz did provide a spark, and the White Sox went 71-31 and over the rest of the season. Tony, for his part, was on the field when the White Sox clinched the division. Unfortunately, 
it was for the Seattle Mariners who were visiting. Uh... Julio Cruz ended up with 57 steals that year. So he got 24 in his time with the White Sox. Tony got 21 steals once he went to the Mariners. So it's not like he was that much slower or... Uh, he had a pretty good season. He hit 267 and finished the season with 34 doubles combined between the White Sox and Mariners. But he didn't get to go to the playoffs. After that 1983 season, he's traded to Cleveland for two-time home run champ Storman Gorman Thomas. If I could put a Gorman Thomas reference in, I, of <laughs> course I will. Gorman Thomas outstanding mustache hit he hit 45 home runs one season big part of the 1982 brewers team uh, i think he led the league in home runs that season as well but also included in that trade was another second baseman so tony traded for a former home run champ and the new starting second baseman jack perconti so it seems to be relatively valuable gorman thomas was getting up in age but still had some power left Tony had a disappointing start with the Indians. At one point in 1984, he went 0 for 44 and had a really rough streak. That's probably one of the worst runs in baseball history. I think the record is 0 for 54. But he ended up with a 221 batting average and a shockingly low 281 slugging percentage, which Oof. considering how many doubles he had earlier in his career, really, really low. So 1984, not so great. 1985-86, picks it back up, pretty solid. 1986 is even borderline impressive. So he ends up finishing that season 301 with 17 home runs, 28 doubles. Actually, now that I read this, this is actually a really good season for a second baseman at that time. Matt, in fact, that was the second best wins above replacement season for a second baseman in 1986, after Steve Sachs, and the 20th best for a second baseman in the 80s. So he had a, a really good season in 1986. It also had a good number of steals, 17 stolen bases. He really put together a, a solid season, and he also had 73 RBIs. After that great season in 1986, we get to 1987. So we see that he was at the Indians for 79 games and at the A's for 61 games. Ends up 266 for the A's during that half of the season. And as we go into 1988, as you, you mentioned at the top of the show, he's not in Major League Baseball anymore. So where, where is he? He went to Japan. Wait, I just scrolled down and what the hell did you add in here? <laughs> I was a surprise. Um, I wanted to talk. Yeah. I've, if we're going to talk about Japanese baseball, we're going to put mascots in the show. There's no doubt about it. He went to Japan. <laughs> In 1988, he went to Japan, so he was not on the 88 or 89 Oakland A's World Series teams. Instead, he was on the first uh, Nankai Hawks in 1988, where he hit 315 with 20 home runs. So his power clearly translated over into Japanese baseball. That team was renamed after 1988 to the Fukuoka Dai Hawks. They were named for a department store the Dai department store. In 1989, with that name change, they also had a new stadium. And Tony hit 34 home runs and had 93 RBIs to go along with the 271 average. His teammate was Willie Upshaw, who I think has a 1988 Topps card. He also hit 33 home runs. So in this 
streak of guys who go to Japan and become power hitters, at least in Tony's case, he was already kind of a power hitter. He's not like Tuffy Rhodes or uh, Alex Cabrera who kind of show up and hit 50 home runs and everybody is looking at their Major League Baseball stats and wondering what the heck happened. Over three seasons, he hit 67 home runs in 308 games in Japan compared to his 75 total home runs over a thousand games in Major League Baseball. I mean, he was mostly hitting doubles in the majors. What do we think's behind this power surge? I think there is, there's a few things here. Sometimes guys go would go to Japan to try to get their career back on track, maybe be able to focus a little bit more being away from home and just focus solely on their swing. When I was looking at the stadiums that he was playing in, Fukuoka played in a stadium that had a 400-foot center field fence, but down the lines was only 302. So compare that to Oakland, where it's 330 down the line. And Major League Baseball has rules that new stadiums have to have a 325 or greater distance from home plate down the line. Some of those doubles, you're hitting 30 doubles a year, or long fly ball outs could very easily go out of the park. Okay, so he was at Fukuoka... For three years, did he try to come back to the majors? He did. He came back in 1991, and the Tigers, who saw the success of turning 38 home runs for Cecil Fielder in Japan into 51 in 1990 in Major League Baseball, thought, well, maybe Tony Bernazard can turn his 34 home runs into something. And instead, he was released after going two for 12 in six games. That did not work out. But David, I notice here, we have a Chiba Lotte Marines connection. Since we made it all the way to Japan in this show, undoubtedly it's going to come back to the Chiba Lotte Marines and to my favorite mascot in all of baseball. How do we get from the Fukuoka Dai Hawks, now Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks, to the Chiba Lotte Marines? Yeah, while we're here, we should probably talk about the <laughs> Chiba Lotte Marines, <laughs> our favorite yeah, our favorite NPB team because of their fish skeleton man mascot. <laughs> I was looking for famous former Fukuoka Hawks players, and I found Tadahito Aguchi. So Tadahito Aguchi came over to MLB. He played for the 2005 White Sox, who won the World Series, and then later played for the Phillies. And of course, I wondered, what is Tadahito Aguchi up to nowadays? He is the manager of the Chibalote Marines. What? Yes. So that's good news. <laughs> Glad to see Tadahito doing well. Fantastic. Well, looks like the biggest accomplishment of Aguchi-san's reign as manager is helping to broker the deal that really is the breaking news. This is from at the end of December, David. I saw this come across the wire on Twitter on the Mondo Mascots account. Mondo Mascots is an account that features all of the great Japanese mascots, whether they are of sports teams, of companies, of towns and cities, of public transit agencies. But in this case, Nazo no Sakana, which is the name of the fish mascot of the Chibalote Marines, he signed a record deal at the end of 2020 and is going to release an album in 2021. So we knew that 2021 had to be a great year. And this was on New Year's this... Eve. What a New Year's celebration. I can't wait oh, for Nazo Nosakana's new record 
which I'm sure is going to have some of the all of the songs of the summer. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. And you'll you'll see in the picture that that uh, Nazem. <laughs> I'm crying looking at this. Nazem, <laughs> he put on a good blazer for the ceremony, shaking the hand of someone who looks very skeptical about the the fact that he has just extended a record deal to a fish who is eating the skeleton of another fish <laughs> while dre- while dressed. In the costume of a man. So, <laughs> so this broke me. Excellent, <laughs> excellent, excellent news. On this note, the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks. Their mascot is very generic. It just is. It's just a hawk, a yellow hawk man with a baseball hat on. Nothing very special about him. He's not eating any other fish. He can't transform his body from a fish to a man to a fish again. So, not that impressed. Try better next year, Fukuoka. Nazo no Sakana had an Instagram exchange with newly acquired third baseman Brandon Laird. He's So he's, he's known as Sushi Boy, which is a great nickname. Brandon Laird, Sushi Boy. When the Chibalote Marines acquired Brandon Laird, Nazo no Sakana sent a note on Instagram and said, All of the fish in Chiba are so delicious, but I am very bad, so you should not be so you should not make me a sushi item. Please promise it. I'm waiting for you here in Chiba, Mr. Sushi Boy. That's oh that's sweet. Yeah. That's really sweet. He was very excited, but he didn't want Sushi Boy to eat him. Which we all... I don't know, it seems, seems fair. We all crave self-preservation, even if you are a fish-eating-a-skeleton man. We've gotten our uh, update from Japan. Let's go back to... Let's wrap up uh, Tony Bernazard. So that's the end of his baseball career as a player. He comes back to the Mets and joins the front office in 2004. In retirement, Tony served as the Players Union's administrator and liaison for Latino players. He also set up Major League Baseball All-Star visits to Japan. So he was working with players, working with the Players Union. And then in 2004, he joins the Mets front office. He has a good rapport with the Latino players. Uh, he was an assistant to GM Omar Manaya. So the players would, you know, sometimes come to Tony's office and give him the dirt on what's happening. He developed a reputation around the league that wasn't great, including some industry sources, let's say, indicating that he was, quote, a really bad guy. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I don't pay a lot of attention to the Mets, and I, maybe I should because it just seems like so many different kinds of train wreck. And in 2008, Tony was accused of undermining Willie Randolph when Randolph was the Mets manager. And it got so bad that you had the bench coaches conspiring with Tony Bernazard. So Jerry Manuel, the bench coach, supposedly conspired with Tony to get Omar Minaya to fire Willie Randolph. And the team wasn't good under Willie Randolph, but there's high expectations and Omar Minaya would bring in over-the-hill 
players and pay them way too much money. And then there'd be these high expectations and Randolph never really achieved much there. And the team wasn't very good. So there were a lot of reasons to fire Willie Randolph, but maybe they didn't need this conspiratorial elements with Tony Bernazard talking to players, bad-mouthing Randolph to players, coaches, journalists, and ownership. They went on a road trip to L.A. Randolph's with the team, flies out with the team to L.A. First game of the West Coast road trip, they win, and they fire him after midnight. Uh, the first game of a road trip. Oh, it's not like it was a surprise. They could have fired him before they left on the trip. But instead, they make him fly all the way across the country, play one game, and then they fire him in his hotel room. So the, Oh, jeez. Jerry Manuel, who had been conspiring with Tony, is brought in as interim manager, gets a full-time contract. So, you know, it should be smooth sailing for Tony, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's in good with the GM, in good with the manager, in July of 2009, he's the Vice President of Player Development. Wow, that's a big promotion. I'm not sure at what point he got promoted to that, but according to some reports I was reading, he there's no reason why he was in this position. He had no experience <laughs> in player development. What were the Mets doing? But one incident with Tony was said to bring the Mets to a new low, which... Oh, I don't think the Mets know a bottom, so a new low is... (laughs) (laughs) It's got to be bad. Omar Minaya, in in an interview about this incident, said, I know that Tony had a team meeting with them, and he's talking about the Binghamton Mets. It was not a you guys have been great meeting. I know he spoke to them in a stern voice. But as far as what he was wearing, what kind of shoes he was wearing, I don't know anything about that. Oh, okay. Well, this this sounds like maybe a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross kind of meeting where Alec Baldwin is coming in from corporate, coming in from downtown, and he's trying to motivate the the young guys in Binghamton and you know say, hey, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado, and second prize is a set of steak knives, and third prize is you're going down you know, to double single A, right? Something like that. You could see maybe uh, kind of hard, hard nosed motivational speech. Is it, was it like that? I, I'm Alec Baldwin kept his shirt on in Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if David Mamet wrote Tony Bernazard's speech to the Binghamton Mets, but he used some choice words for some young players on the Binghamton Mets and maybe threatened to fight them and maybe took his shirt off. <laughs> he went after a middle infield prospect and just he threatened to fight some kids basically <laughs> that's probably i'm gonna guess that's gonna get you fired <laughs> in tony in his defense said that he's an avid bike rider and it was a, sh- a long-sleeved shirt and he got hot so he was just he was gonna just taking his shirt off oh that's good excuse. and he was just challenging them to play better Mm-hmm. So he, yeah. yeah, of course he gets fired. This is a PR nightmare, right? Omar Minaya accused a reporter who reported the incident of having an ulterior motive and said that Adam Rubin was just trying to get a job. To which <laughs> the reporter who was in the room at the press conference called Minaya 
despicable. There's a great back and forth. And uh, yeah, by 2010, Manaya and Jerry Manuel were also fired. It's just a, another step of the crazy story of the New York Mets. This is a path of greatness that uh, has gone on for many years. So that's 2010. Looks like in 2012, Tony was working with sports agent Scott Boris. 2012 was the last that I could find of him. I'm not sure where Tony Bernazard is. That was the last I heard of him. Player relations with Scott Boris. I'll be on the lookout for Tony Bernazard updates. Well, as we close the book on Tony, he was a decent player for several seasons on some okay teams. But after looking deeper into his career, what do you think? I thought it was interesting that you have a guy who, in 1988, he wasn't a washed-up player, but he went to Japan to try to get his career back on track. He said that pitchers went out of their way to throw hard to him or to pitch around ex-MLB players, but he didn't get the same bounce that Cecil Fielder got on return. He didn't hit 51 home runs. But it's interesting that it did open up opportunities like setting up MLB All-Star visits to Japan, and he seems to be a pretty opportunistic guy. He hitched his wagon to Omar Minaya. Mets ownership was overly loyal to Omar. He got a lot of chances, and Omar was loyal to his guys. So regardless of the disappointing outcomes on the field, the fact that Tony had no experience in player development, he seemed to keep getting pushed up and up the, the chain. But there came a point where Tony's ego was too big for the team. And you can't threaten kids when you're in player development. But I think that this is just a further sign of the mess of the Mets under the Wilpons. Got much better. As uh, as we heard this week, the new owner, Steve Cohen, ended up needing to bail out a hedge fund with billions of dollars thanks to the GameStop uh, Robin Hood kids. So... Everything's going great for the Mets. Yeah, they, I mean, they signed Francisco Lindor, and Steve Cohen is on Twitter talking to fans, doing a great job. A couple months later, he's deleted his account and <laughs> bailing out hedge funds. So I don't know. I thought it was fun to search uh, what is wrong with the Mets. It just <laughs> found a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. I need to pay more attention to the Mets. I hope that they're good. Excellent. Well, thanks again for the recommendation uh, to Shortstops 9. You were right. Explosive career as an executive. Some interesting stories. If you just signed a new record deal, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Tops1988. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for 1988 Tops Podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.